It's Friday, February 11th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. The CDC releases a new study on the effectiveness of COVID boosters. The FDA postpones authorizing vaccines for children under five. Governor Hogan calls for an end to the school mask mandate. BCPS is launching a campaign to get more kids vaccinated. Maryland lawmakers consider a bill that would grant workers paid family leave. They're also considering bills that would change the way the state addresses stocking. And a conversation with Dr. Lena Wen on the debate over lifting COVID restrictions. It's The Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. The CDC published a study today showing that the effectiveness of the COVID-19 Pfizer and Moderna boosters wane after four months. However, the study also shows that those boosters were highly effective during the Omicron surge in preventing hospitalization and urgent care visits. Within two months, boosters were around 91% effective against hospitalizations. Within four months, they were 78% effective. Boosters are available to everyone 12 years and older. COVID-19 vaccine rollout for children under five will begin later than expected. The FDA is delaying a long-anticipated meeting where it would have decided whether to authorize Pfizer vaccines for children under five. The meeting was originally scheduled for next Tuesday. In a news release, the FDA said they would wait for additional data from Pfizer on the effectiveness of a three-dose series of the vaccine. Pfizer expects those results to come out in early April. For the first time in nearly three months, Maryland's COVID-19 positivity rate is below 5%. That's the word from state health officials today, who say the positivity rate dipped to 4.88% in the past 24 hours. This time last month, the rate peaked at just below 30%. Hospitalizations are also down day over day to just over 900. Maryland public schools are under a masking mandate with off-ramps, meaning local school systems can lift masking based on COVID metrics. Governor Larry Hogan wrote to the State Board of Education Thursday, calling for an end to that school mask mandate. Experts disagree on whether that would be the right call. Hospitalizations dipped below 1,000 Thursday, according to state data. The positivity rate has dropped more than 80 percent since last month. But Dr. Otis Johnson Jr., executive director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Safe and Healthy Schools, says the only metrics that really matter are vaccination rates among children. Right now, he says they're too low. Less than half of 5 to 11-year-olds are vaccinated. It really is perplexing. (laughs) And so that's perhaps uh, an opinion that's going against the tide that we see now. Other experts like Dr. Lena Wen favor lifting masking, which Hogan noted in his letter. A board spokesperson says it appreciates Hogan's input, but did not say whether the board would comply. The head nurse for the Baltimore County Public Schools says not enough students are getting vaccinated for COVID-19. WYPR's John Lee reports the school system is gearing up to try to get more shots into the arms of county children. The county school system has a goal of getting 80% of its students vaccinated. Head nurse Debbie Somerville told the school board only about 30% of elementary school students have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Almost two-thirds of high school students and about 50% of middle schoolers have been vaccinated. So, Somerville says BCPS and the health department are starting a vaccination program. The campaign will include information for our parents, 
outreach to families to answer questions and assist with scheduling appointments, and an increase in school-located vaccine clinics. Somerville says the rate of reported COVID-19 cases in the schools continues to decline. The slowest decrease is in the elementary schools, which she attributes, at least in part, to fewer students being vaccinated. John Lee, WIPR News. In Howard County, parents and students rallied against school mask mandates outside of last night's Board of Education meeting. Many opposed to the masking say they're fighting for parental choice, with some planning to send their kids to school without masks if the mandate isn't lifted. Maryland's House and Senate Democrats unveiled a roughly $100 million package Thursday. They said was designed to shore up a child care system ravaged by the pandemic. WIPR's Joel McCord has more. The bills would provide retention and new hire bonuses for child care workers, create specialized care for children with special needs, and grants to help struggling child care facilities stay afloat. Senator Katie Fry Hester, a Howard County Democrat, warned the state could lose a third of its child care facilities. If we truly believe that our children are the future, we also need to ensure livable wages for the providers who care for them. Senate President Bill Ferguson acknowledged the cost was steep, but said the state, with its $4.6 billion surplus, could afford it. We are in a fortunate place to be able to invest resources in the things that matter the most. The infrastructure for child care is one of those important sectors that we have to bolster for Maryland's economy to rebound. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Baltimore County Councilwoman Kathy Bevins, who has run into political trouble for moving out of her council district, is going to be challenged in the June Democratic primary. John Lee has that story. Caitlin Clem Kellner, a lifelong county resident and a community activist in the Overly Fullerton area, has filed to run for the seat. Bevins' residency issue may weaken her re-election chances, but Clem Kellner says that is not why she's running. Where Councilwoman Bevins lives to me, while it is important, it did not affect my running decision. Clem Kellner says the 6th Council District needs a change. Bevins is in her 12th year on the council. Bevins admits she moved out of the 6th. Once she realized that violated the county's charter, she moved back. The charter says a council member who moves out of their district has to step down. The county attorney is examining whether Bevins violated the charter, and if so, how that's enforced. Bevins did not return requests for comment, but has said recently she plans to run for a fourth term. John Lee, WIPR News. Federal law already protects your job. If you take off work to welcome a new child, take care of an ill parent or yourself, or if you've had a catastrophic injury. But you don't get paid. Now, Maryland lawmakers are pushing a bill to create an insurance fund that would pay someone taking family and medical leave a portion of their salary. WYPR's Joel McCord reports. Heidi Lewis was pregnant with her second child when she told her employer, a large independent bookstore in Washington, D.C., that the 10 days paid parental leave they were offering wasn't viable. And I knew at 10 days I would be in no shape to return to work after having a child before. 
I knew at 10 days what it looks like for a new mother. And I can tell you that's not a person you want sitting at a desk. Her boss agreed and extended the leave to 10 weeks at partial pay. The District of Columbia created a similar policy shortly afterward. Now, Lewis, who lives in Silver Spring, says Maryland should do the same. She calls it a productivity issue, asking employers what kind of employees they want. Do you want a well-rested, centered, balanced employee, the one that you hired, or do you want one who is exhausted, riddled with pain from a difficult delivery or childbirth, up at all hours of the day, nursing, um, exhausted, etc.? Do you want that person? The bill creates a state-run insurance fund. Employers and employees would contribute a small amount from each paycheck to the fund, and workers who need family and medical leave could submit a claim and draw a portion of their weekly salary. Antonio Hayes, the Baltimore Democrat sponsoring the Senate bill and an expectant father, says he already has that type of leave, but most Marylanders don't. Especially those who are some um, of the more entry level or, or uh, lower wage earners don't have that type of leave available to them. That means parents often have to return to work sooner than they would like in order to get paid. You know, like not having time to spend with a newborn child in the early stages, you know, creates other problems. Andrew Griffin, the Maryland Chamber of Commerce's Vice President for Government Affairs, worries about the costs to small business and nonprofits, and that the state, rather than employers, control how the leave is taken. For an employer to be able to have zero control over when their employees are taking leave at all um, is pretty is a pretty difficult pill to swallow, frankly. In addition, he said, employers worry that the program could be abused. Listen, this would be the only leave program passed uh, either at the state level or at the federal level in which the employer has no way of, of reporting fraud and abuse at all. Um, that's that's not allowed for in this law. Jason Williams, who runs Mason Dixon Companies, a Baltimore-based construction, consulting, and property management firm, established a program in his company after an employee told him she was pregnant and wanted to be able to take off 12 weeks after the birth of her child. I thought the right thing to do was to create a policy in my business where I gave her part of her salary just so I knew that she would come back to me, and she was very thankful for that, and I just made the decision by myself to do it. He says the policy has helped him retain employees and, in the long run, saved money. Think about how much money you spend to recruit someone, to onboard them, and, and, and get them into your company where they become a functioning part of your company, and they are helping increase your bottom line. Losing an employee, I mean, that to me is more expensive than retaining one. The Family and Medical Leave Insurance Bill will be heard in a Senate committee this afternoon. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. As the Omicron surge dies down in many parts of the country, more and more Democratic governors in New York, Massachusetts, California, Illinois, among others, are easing mask mandates, breaking with the White House and CDC guidance. Their decision to ease requirements has met backlash. Critics have said they're politically motivated, not based on safety. 
And while mask mandates have always been divisive, we're seeing more and more disagreement among doctors, who for most of the pandemic have supported mask mandates. Dr. Lena Wen, emergency physician and former Baltimore City Health Commissioner, is one of those experts in favor of lifting restrictions where appropriate. She spoke with Tom Hall on midday earlier this week. I am arguing for government mandates on masking to be lifted in areas where hospitals are no longer overwhelmed. The U.S. is a big country. There are certain parts of the country where Omicron has just peaked or um, the hospitals are still really overwhelmed and over capacity. It's not the time for those areas to be letting up on precautions, certainly. But in areas like ours, where the numbers are quite precipitously declining in terms of cases, but also hospitals are, are now out of the worst of it, I do think that it's reasonable for government mandates to be peeled back in favor of individual decisions. Dr. Wen said what the government should do and what individuals should do are not quite the same thing. Some people, she said, may still want to take precautions. So here's my advice here. Um, it, it depends, again, on your individual medical circumstances. If you are someone who is generally healthy, you're fully vaccinated and boosted, your chance of becoming severely ill from COVID is extremely low. An analysis published in the New York Times last week found that for the average person who is vaccinated and boosted, your chance of dying from COVID is about one in a million on any given week. Your chance of dying in a car accident is two in a million in that same period of time. And so we need to put risk into perspective. At the same time, if you have severe immunocompromised, you're being treated for cancer, you're on chemotherapy, you have COPD, you're on oxygen, you have other medical issues, you may want to take additional precautions, especially if others around you are not masking anymore, you may still want to be even more cautious. Dr. Wen acknowledged that the virus can throw us curveballs and that more variants may come up. But she said the best case scenario is also the most likely one. We have a large number of people, thankfully, who are vaccinated. Also, we have a lot of people in the U.S. who were exposed to Omicron and were infected with Omicron. And though we don't know precisely how long immunity from infection could last, we know that people do have immunity for a period of time. And so it seems very likely that there's going to be a lull come the spring, hopefully lasting into the summer months. I'm arguing that we should take advantage of these months, especially people who are vaccinated and boosted, should take this opportunity to see their friends and travel. If federal health authorities want to maintain their credibility, Dr. Wen said they have to stop treating every day like a, quote, five alarm fire. Come the fall or even earlier, there may be other variants that arise and we may need to put restrictions back. But that doesn't mean that we need to maintain a perpetual level of lockdown because that's not healthy. It's also not what will allow public health to continue to be effective later on when and if a five alarm fire actually happens again. You can hear Tom Hall's entire conversation with Dr. Lena Wen on midday at WIPR.org. Maryland law limits the definition of stalking to the physical act of following another person despite many other forms of stalking, including electronic. Two bills in the Senate look to make sweeping changes to the way the state approaches the issue. 
Cal and Tanzel Suddeth has more. 76% of women murdered by an intimate partner were stalked. And in addition, those that reported stalking, 81% indicated that they were um, also experiencing some form of physical assault by that same partner. So stalking is an indication of lethality. That was Melanie Shapiro, the public policy director for Maryland's Network Against Domestic Violence, testifying Tuesday in favor of one bill that would expand the definition of stalking to include electronic stalking and tracking devices. The bill, she says, is important for two reasons. One is to modernize the law. The other is to be able to offer more services, namely protective orders, for victims. And so if a victim is being stalked and wishes to pursue with protective order, we need this inclusion of electronic surveillance to be included in the stalking definition for them to be eligible for the protective order. During the hearing, there was no opposition to the bill sponsored by Senator Jeff Waldstriker, a Montgomery County Democrat, and five others. Sheriff Darren Popkin, a Montgomery County Sheriff, expressed his support for the measure. Uh, as the laws have not kept up with the this ever-changing technology, the ability to protect victims of domestic violence, as well as other crime victims and witnesses through stalking statutes, has become increasingly problematic. But a second bill, intended to complement the expanded definition, is facing more pushback from the law enforcement community. The so-called electronic stalking bill would require police officers to receive training on stalkerware. Those are software programs that can be covertly installed on a person's device, allowing the device to be secretly monitored. To carry around a phone, it's essentially a tracking device. It gives your location at all times. It contains all of your uh, passwords for your accounts, all of your communications, so your photos, your contacts. It provides a, a very broad and uh, comprehensive picture of what is happening in your life. Uh, And we see this kind of software being used uh, as a tool of coercive control in abusive relationships all the time. That was Eva Galperin, the Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She is an expert in stalkerware, co-founded the Coalition Against Stalkerware, and has created trainings like those that would be used by Maryland police. She provided testimony in favor of the electronic stalking bill. But John Nesky, the Bowie chief of police, says mandating another training is not the best way to go about this. When legislation keeps mandating entry-level components, the average academy is six to eight months now. Um, And that is trying to get all the uh, the mandatory objectives in. It just creates uh, such a a load on the academy staff and it keeps pushing the... uh, pushing the academies longer and longer and longer. The bill sponsor, Montgomery County Democrat Senator Susan Lee, said law enforcement needs to know how to handle these electronic stalking cases if violence is to be prevented. You know, sometimes law enforcement, they're not knowing what they're looking for, particularly when it comes to electronic stalking. And, um, and, and we got to do something about it. We have to give the victims some kind of relief. In 2020, 56 Marylanders died as a result of domestic violence the highest number in more than a decade. For WYPR News, I'm Callan tansel Suddeth. We cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? 
leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number, 410-235-6060. We've also got a button on the WYPR app, so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose Comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410-235-6060. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my colleagues on the WYPR news team, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Callan Hansel-Smith. Our digital content director is Jamila Kremple, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.